was recently reading Forbes magazine online. Does that count? No, it doesn't count. Um, is it even reading if it's online? I don't know. But I was on the internet, uh, like a good American, and uh, reading this article on how to spot a bad scientific theory um, by uh, Ethan Seigel, who obviously you guys all know. Um, and I, I want to read this quote here. We want to be able to apply our rules to systems we haven't yet observed or measured to predict novel behavior that wouldn't arise in other formulations. Ideas are, are a dime a dozen, but good ideas are extremely rare. The simple reason why, most ideas assume too much and predict too little. This is uh, a, a staple foundation of scientific inquiry. A good theory is going to have some kind of uh, 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 ability to predict outcomes. And I think this is true in other fields as well, right? Good philosophy should, should, should uh, predict the way things are, uh, the, the way that, that people relate to one another, the way that the world is. And I, I so appreciate um, a thinker, an apologist, his name's Greg Kokel, and he explains the Christian worldview as the best explanation of the way things are. And I so agree with that, that the Christian worldview, the story of how God has created the world and interacted with mankind and, and, and the way that we've rebelled against him and he sent his son to die for us, uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the biblical story and narrative, it is the best explanation for the way that we can observe the world is. When we look around us, if we're to read the Bible and we're to take it seriously and truthfully to say what it's trying to say, if we're going to take it as God wants it to be taken, we would expect to see a world like the world we see. Now, obviously, it doesn't predict every little nuance, but we would expect to see the kind of world that we're in. And I just want to mention some of the things that Jesus predict, predicted. He predicted his own death, his own cross, and he predicted his own resurrection from the dead. To the shock of the religious leaders and even his own disciples, Jesus predicted the horrific destruction of the city of Jerusalem. I mean, if, if you want to, if, if you're into documentaries or you like to just learn about history, take some time and, and read about and look into the destruction in AD 70 of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. It is absolutely horrific uh, and shocking what happened there. And Jesus, he predicted these things uh, just as they unfolded. And he predicted the abolition of the Old Testament temple worship norms and that they would be abolished throughout the age of the church, as has been the case for the last 2,000 years. Jesus predicted the increasing expansion of the gospel to every ethnic group on, on planet Earth. This is the great commission he gave the church. He's not coming back until the mission is finished. That every single ethnic group would have an expression of the gospel uh, and would be represented one day among uh, the people worshiping God before his throne. Jesus, though, did not predict, he did not predict the Christianization of culture at large. This is something that uh, you, you've heard me speak maybe about this a few times if you've been around. He did not predict that the culture at large would be Christianized and would follow the dictates of the Bible and would have a Christian worldview and everybody would be nice and awesome and great and sin would go away. He predicted that the church would live alongside of the world until his return. 
This is the world that we should expect to see if we believe in the word of God. And this is the world that we do see. When Jesus predicts things, they happen. They happen. Unlike anyone else who's ever lived in human history, when Jesus says it, it will happen. We may have to be patient for it. It may seem, you know, those three days seemed like forever for the disciples. But when he says it, it will happen. We can absolutely take that to the bank. We must trust him. We must trust him. We must listen to him and expect what he instructed us to expect. Like this is so important for us. Uh, and, and in that, to hold firmly to the sovereignty, the sovereign rule and control of Jesus Christ over the world and his goodness. He has good intentions for us, for his bride, for his church. He has good intentions for the world. It was his love for all men and women that caused him to take on flesh and a human nature and suffer and die for our sake. And in this, we must take heart in Christ as we trust him, as we trust that he is in control. Even when Jesus tells us difficult things, this speech and teaching that he gave to the disciples right before the crucifixion in John 13 through 17, uh, he, he was saying some difficult things, some things that they did, they did not want to hear. Their entire world was about to crumble, the, the entire world as they knew it. And he says here in this context, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And I hope that as we learn to lean on the words of Jesus Christ, this this series has been, I think it's been a little on the heavy side. Maybe we could have had a little more comic relief. I don't know. It's been a little on the heavy side. I think the Lord has led us in it. I believe he's led us in it. But as we listen to Jesus say hard things, we've got to to hear him saying to us through his word, take heart. Take heart. Will you trust him? Will you trust that he is in control? Will you trust that he is good and not lose heart? That's my prayer for each and every one of us, myself included, through this series And that leads us into 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, where we've been the last five weeks and we're on our sixth week and final week of this series, sarcastically titled, Good Times, Everything is Awesome, where Jesus laid out the kind of things we ought to expect to see in the days leading up to his return. Lord, give us ears to hear and understand and live out your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Very similar to what Jesus said to his disciples right before his death and resurrection. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Tonight we're going to speak on just a few of these adjectives and, uh, and, and I hope have some real 
things in our hearts and in our steps to walk away with. Treacherous, rash, and conceited. These are kind of the three adjectives for us to cover. We've talked through every single word of this passage over the last five weeks. And this word treacherous, this adjective that we should expect to be increasingly true of people, even so-called believers, in the time leading up to Christ's return. This is the word used of Judas, the one who betrayed his Lord and his king to his authorities. It's not a word used often in the New Testament. It's used of Judas. To be treacherous here, it, it is ultimately to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. To betray him. His, his acts, his ministry, his teaching in the pursuit of temporal self-interest. To betray Jesus in the pursuit of self-interest as, as Judas did. And of course, it's not possible for us to betray Jesus in the same way Judas did. We can't do that in precisely the same way. But for, for us, I, I think of those today who would oppose Jesus Christ and the cause of Christ for the sake of self-interest. And of this, I mean, it grieves me. It just grieves me to say there, there are so many so many examples. Uh, there's, there's too many to choose from of, of na- even names that we know, names that many of us know over the last few years. I, I think of some of the high-profile worship leaders and Christian musicians over the last few years who have had kind of a, a coming out describing their deconversion story, uh, telling their deconversion story, their their, their uh, path towards deconstructing their fundamental Christian worldview and adopting a a different worldview that nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100, maybe maybe even 100 times out of 100, um, is this new worldview. Guys, it is so, so consistent with what we've talked about as the new normative cultural religion, moralistic therapeutic deism where the, the fundamental premise is self, is self-love, self as the arbiter of all truth. This is so often, uh, and, and in fact, I'm hard-pressed to think of an, a deconversion story that doesn't end in the adoption of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, we've seen high-profile Christians. Uh, we've seen some high-profile pastors who have, have, have written extensively and, and had influence in, in Christian culture, um, sharing their deconversion stories. And so often is the case, it starts, the story, somewhere in there, it's, it's, oftentimes it's buried, but somewhere in there, at, at the beginning of this story, many of these individuals recognize there was a cost to Christian orthodoxy. There was a cost. There was a social cost. There was something in the Bible that they had promoted or believed that all of a sudden caused them to be alienated from the culture, perhaps from individuals in their their lives or their families, or even more so, 
from the very things that they so desperately wanted to, to do and to act out. And tragically, I think what we've seen in some of these stories is a religion that either at the outset or somewhere along the way was built upon the ideal of self-interest. Guys, if you've been in the church for long, you've seen many, many people come and go. Many people come and go. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen come and go, not, uh, not just from this church, but this, the, the church across our, our city and, and world, even in some of the cross-cultural experiences I've had, that their entry into the church was, frankly, it was built upon self-interest. Now, I will say this is true for me. Okay, this very building right here. I, I, uh, I came to Christ uh, as a 14-year-old. I accidentally went to this depiction of hell that I thought was a haunted house. And uh, it, it really scared me. And I heard the gospel in a, in a just tremendously clear way. The Lord just, oh, he crushed me. And just tears of repentance and sorrow over my sin. Uh, that, that was the beginning of the trajectory change in my life when I came to know Jesus. But uh, as a 15-year-old, as I was going into my sophomore year of high school, this building right here, I remember, oh, I got roped into, I got tricked into signing up for this conference in South Carolina. I didn't really know anyone except for some people that weren't going to the conference, but they didn't tell me that until after I signed up. But I'd paid, my parents had paid, it was too late, I was stuck. I, I was desperately trying to think of ways to get out of this thing in the days leading up. I couldn't, I'm stuck, I'm here, I'm at this church. And, um, you know, I had an awesome time. I mean, it was a life-changing conference. But to be perfectly honest, one of the reasons I kept coming back was a girl. And sadly, it's not the woman I'm married to today, even though I did meet her that week. I keep coming back for her now. <laughs> um, yeah, this 15-year-old girl that looked like she was like 23, um, some of you may know who she was. Uh, anyways, this is, this is probably inappropriate. <laughs> this is not planned. All that to say, I did keep coming in some part based on self-interest. But that will never stand. It will never last. It will never stand. And it's worth less than nothing. To have a religion or to make our decisions about how we worship and who we worship with, based primarily upon self-interest, it is worth less, and I say this intentionally, less than nothing. And uh, sadly, we've seen, I think we've seen some of that exposed in a number of individuals kind of in the wider uh, body of Christ over the last number of years. We have got to forsake all and love Jesus Christ. Jesus is... He is Christianity. He is our world. He is our worldview. He is who we live for. He is the person that, that teaches us and tells us what to believe and how to live. He is why we must think and feel and do everything. He is first. We, we must forsake all others for Jesus Christ. We must love him so much and be so committed to him and so aware of his kindness and love and grace and mercy and sacrifice for us 
that it is as if we hate the people in our lives that we love the most. Hate your mother and father, your brother and sister. This is what Jesus told his disciples. Compared to the love and devotion that we must have for Jesus Christ, he is the one who is worthy of that level of love and devotion. Religion built on self-interest will not stand, nor should it stand, nor should it stand. This next ideal that we ought to expect to see increasing around us in the days leading up to Christ's return is uh, to, to, to be rash, to be one who is rash. This, rash. this is to be impetuous, reckless, thoughtless, to act quickly and strongly, decisively, with very little understanding. It's, it's only other use in the New Testament is in uh, Acts chapter 19, where the, the crowd had gathered against Paul and his, his disciples as they were bringing the gospel into the city of Ephesus. And Demetrius, the silversmith there, he's making these idols, but people are burning all their like idolatrous stuff. I mean, worth tons and millions of dollars. They're burning it as they're coming to Christ. And so he's, uh, he's upset about this and he leads this charge and this mob and this riot against Paul in the gospel. Um, this, this gives us, I think, a picture of what it is to be rash. And in the passage itself in Acts 19, it says that many of the people there who were screaming and shouting and rioting, they, they didn't even understand what they were rioting about. They had no understanding even why they were supposed to be, why they were supposed to be upset. This is the story in Acts chapter 19. Now I'll say for us, for us, and I think you, I think you know this. I think, I think everyone here knows this. There has been a growing, a strong and growing expectation, not just for churches, but for organizations of any kind, any organization, uh, sports drink organization, uh, Hanes. I mean, just whoever whatever organization, but certainly churches, to speak quickly and decisively and specifically on cultural issues. And uh, this pressure, as it's here for organizations, it is certainly, certainly here for the church and in the church to speak publicly, quickly, strongly, decisively, and specifically I think you can tell from my tone and from the previous messages that I think that is, that is not a good thing for our culture. And it is not a good thing for the church. And it is not a pressure that is appropriate for Christian discipleship. That is not, that, that is not something that we ought to engage in in any way as followers of Christ. That culture of quick expectation and pressure no matter how strong and agreeable the cause is. As I've said before, even if the cause was proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the central tenet in our faith, I pray to God I would not, I would not uh, relent or give in to a, a pressure to speak quickly and decisively, even on the things that matter most. 
my prayer is that um, the, the prevailing wisdom that will win the day in the church is to be slow to speak, to be measured in our words, to be filled with the love of Christ in our words and in our tone, yet to have the gospel message on the tip of our tongues, to be prepared in season and out of season with the gospel message when it's popular, when it's unpopular. Uh, Maybe it's not ever really popular, but I think you know what I mean. And I, I know many of you have appreciated that sentiment. I, I, I hope that most, I hope all of you have appreciated that sentiment over the, the last few men, months, but I, I know some have been critical and some of you here or watching may be critical uh, of even what I'm saying right now. But I, I, I pray that each of us will come to embrace, to really embrace and appreciate and love and be grateful for the safety that exists and the goodness of this kingdom value to be slow to speak, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, slow to become angry. These are the kingdom values. And I'm so grateful for these in times that are shaky, where there's so many, so many voices telling us what to to do. And I'll say one thing that we have, as pastors, and, and some other leaders have, have, have worked on communicating to our, our home group leader team many different things through this season, not all of which we've, 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 uh, we've shared everything with, with the church, I mean, mainly just for time's sake. But one thing that we have encouraged, and, and, and I think would encourage every single person, this is consistent with the, the Christian ethic to live as, as Bible Christians, and that is when we are critical of something, whether it's a person or an ideology, um, before we are critical, we understand. Before we are critical, we understand. If I cannot defend the position that I'm criticizing, I need to close my mouth. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. If I cannot defend it, I might not, I, I, I certainly might not agree with that defense, but if I don't understand what I'm talking about enough to, to charitably present the other side, I need to just be quiet and wait. And for me, that is most things. Most things I don't understand, most volatile things I don't understand enough yet to charitably present the other side. And so uh, many of these things are things to which I don't have the permission to speak boldly on unless the Spirit leads in such a way. And I, I, I want to maybe emphasize that, that that is a general principle. I'm not saying every single argument that someone makes for you, you need to just be silent and go research for 12 hours. There are things that may fall in the category, even though you don't specifically understand them, of, of things that you do understand because you have the word of God uh, and you have the Holy Spirit leading you in, in all truth. Um, but I think we'd be wise. We'd be wise and, 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 and uh, salt of the earth even to live by this principle, to be slow to criticize others until we can charitably defend and understand where they're coming from. With this 
with this pressure to move quickly and decisively. So, so important. So important for us as children of God and citizens of his kingdom to stand strong on his word. To stand strong on his word. There has been a tremendous increase. It's been there since I've been a follower of Christ. Yet there's been a tremendous increase in our culture and our city of pressure towards Orthodox Christian beliefs. And just that, that just standard, just standard Christ, things that all Christians ought to believe that are consistent with clear biblical teaching. There has been a, a, an increased pressure. And I hope and pray that that trend reverses itself, but we must be prepared for it to not. And to stand strong in our own convictions and worldview. Know what you believe and know why you believe it and have it be the word of God. Have it be the word of God. This is our sword. This is the truth that brings freedom, that is real, that we can trust and hang our hats on. The time may be coming and perhaps has already come where you will be seen as guilty of one sin, one cultural sin because of another cultural sin. Essentially, if you do not accept all of the tenets of this new cultural religion that we've called moralistic therapeutic deism, if you do not accept the whole thing, you're guilty of rejecting it all. The time is coming and has indeed come where righteousness will be called evil where goodness will be called hate, where compassion and wisdom will be looked down upon, spat upon, rejected, and where people will will live in fear, even Christians, for speaking the truth, graciously, graciously speaking the truth, or even believing the truth. That time is coming and has come. And I want to just admonish and implore all of us, myself included, in this community, stand firm on the word of God. He will not fail us. He will not fail us. And stand firm with your brothers and sisters. Love them. Support them. Encourage them. Point them to Jesus Christ. This next adjective is that of conceited, and that is to think so highly of oneself that it is to the point of foolishness and even mental, mental, mental illness. This is what this word means. Not just to be a little bit proud or, or I think you're, you're nice or great or happy with the way God made you as we should be. It's to have such a high view of oneself that one becomes mentally ill. The conceited person's view of reality, particularly in, the, in regard to their own self-conception, is diluted to the point of mental illness. If I am God, if self-love is the, the primary foundational tenet of my religion, because I am God, I determine rather than discover my own identity. I determine rather than discover my own identity. And this cuts at the core of the biblical story and even the gospel itself. 
that we can determine or discover or, or, or our own identity. We discover our identity as men and women who've been created graciously in the image of God. And I love this passage in Revelation chapter two that describes what's going to happen for the church when Jesus comes back. He's, he's going to give his children a stone with a new name on it, known only to him. And I believe what that passage is, is saying and, and communicating is there is, when you read the biblical story, God gives people names in these transformational times that is descriptive of their true identity, where God is leading them, who he has made them, what he has made them to do, who he has made them to be. We see this over and over again from the Old Testament, its beginnings through the New Testament. And there will be a day where it's not just the patriarchs, it's not just the apostles, but for every child of God, he gives you a stone with a new name on it. Known only to him. He knows you. He knows how he has made you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything in your heart, everything in your mind. He chose to make you and create you. And I believe on that day for his children, we will see the glory of God and we will stand in awe, the majesty of Jesus Christ. And we will also understand and finally discover who we are in a way that's more full than we could imagine today. But we cannot settle We cannot in the church settle for the cheap substitute of forming our own identity and path. We must discover who God has made us and called us to be. The last thing we see in this passage is that we ought to expect an increase in ones who have a form of godliness but deny its power. What does this mean exactly? This is maybe the most, um, the, the least intuitive kind of descriptors in this passage. That ones would have a form of godliness but deny its power. So I, I want to just go through each word here real quick. First, first, the form, that is outward appearance. So outward appearance of godliness, which is devotion, service to God. It, godliness is a good thing. It's a necessary thing that God has called us to. It, it's word used over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. It's to be like God, to be for God. So there will be ones who on the outside have the appearance of godliness. This is very similar terminology and verbiage used of the Pharisees, where they were beautiful, like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the, ins- on the outside, but on the inside full of dead man's bones. And Jesus called them out so, so strongly for their outward appearance of righteousness. He knew something was happening quite different on the inside. The passage goes on to say that that these individuals will deny the power of godliness. Now, this word denial is maybe for you not quite what it seems. This is a forceful, oppositional 
strong word. This is an active rejection, like a renunciation or a hatred. It's often translated to to disown, like one would disown their own parents or their children in a forceful way. These ones who have some kind of godliness on the outside, and I I don't know what that means, whether that means um, religious ritual and that they've got the credentials or the clothing um, or the following. It could mean adherence to just strong religious-like principles. I, I, I don't know, and I think there's quite a bit of flexibility in that. But there will be a forceful denial of the power of godliness. What exactly does this mean, the power of godliness? This word power is used so many times throughout the New Testament. It's not used of human beings or human power. It's used of the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit to do the work of God particularly through his people, to transform people physically through miracles, through the impossible, and even more so internally to walk and step with Jesus Christ and walk in obedience to him. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, I think is a great passage describing this kind of power that's being forcefully rejected by ones with an appearance of godliness. For the spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, this is for all believers, power, love, and self-discipline. So, in the words used again here, catch this. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Paul's writing this from prison. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It was the power of God that led Paul, that, that enabled Paul, to become like Christ to the point where he could suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is not worldly power. This is the power to to walk in obedience to Christ, to be like him, to obey his commands, to become like him in our minds and in our hearts and in our actions. This is the power that we should so desperately crave that Jesus died to give us and that the Holy Spirit fills his people with. We have not been given a spirit that makes us timid, but one that gives us power, power to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so I think you can put those things together and see that there should be an an expectation of an increase in people who have some kind of religion on the outside, but forcefully, forcefully deny obedience to Jesus Christ in a life that is in step with him, both in heart and in deed. And I hope that you can recognize the many ways, the many, many ways in our world, in our setting, in our, in our city right now, that we're, we're feeling that, we're seeing that. And again, we've got to hear this call to be separate, to live as citizens of the kingdom. And this is where the passage, this is where our passage ends. With this rather inconvenient, or so it seems, command to avoid such people. Don't have anything to do with them. Avoid them. 
This is one we've not talked about much over the years. Because we we want, and I think this is the the maybe the core motivation behind why maybe we've underemphasized these type of commands that are found throughout the New Testament. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We do not want to disengage from the world and cut off all our relationships and, and cease to be a voice, a salt, and a light in the world and, and workers of, of deeds of righteousness, regardless of how they're received, for those who are even radically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see people come to know him. I want to see people like myself. I was so lost and burdened and broken and confused and would go along with what anyone told me on any given day. Come to know Jesus Christ and come into his kingdom and have their life and their family tree changed and transformed forever. I want to see that so badly. But I think so often over the last couple of decades in the church, we've, we've made some mistakes. Guys, we've, we've made some mistakes. We have been so afraid. And I'm just, I'm speaking of the church as I've, as I've perceived it. I could be wrong. As I've perceived it, the Bible churches who love the Lord, who love the Lord whose leadership loves the Lord, I think we've been so afraid of separateness. We've, we've wanted to reach people. We want to bring people in. And we can't shrink back from that. We should only grow in that. We cannot neglect the gospel. We cannot neglect bringing the gospel two ways, two people in ways that they can see and understand. But we cannot just mix in. We can't do it. God has called us to live differently with a different set of values. And I, I have to say this. If your closest and most intimate relationships are, are with ones who don't know Christ, I think it's going to be very hard for you to finish the race. I think it's going to be very, very hard for you to finish the race. Cannot tell you how many people I have seen over the years, I've been crazily in full-time vocational ministry, Christian ministry, for the last 17 years. And I cannot tell you how many people I've seen with one foot in the world and one foot in the church and with, without revival in their own life and heart, without embracing separateness, without being willing to stand out from the world and be rejected by the world. They don't finish the race. They don't finish the race. Perhaps they will. Perhaps they will come back. I pray they will. But for you, as we hear this message and and reflect on this passage, a final time in this series tonight, my heart for every one of you and every single person listening to the podcast or watching this, is to finish the race. To see Jesus when he comes back. To celebrate, not to tremble, but to celebrate at his return. And to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
We want to be that kind of church. But we must embrace our kingdom values, our worldview that comes from Jesus Christ and his gospel. We must embrace the most radical things imaginable. Love for our enemies. Devotion to one another. Not, not and this isn't the most radical thing ever, but not, reg, not, not neglecting the gathering of the saints. Us worshiping and meeting together, and, and it's, it's never been more challenging and difficult. And there, there are good reasons why certain people can't be here right now. And that breaks my heart. But when we're on the other side of this, when we're on the other, and I pray that is soon, when we're on the other side of this, we cannot neglect meeting with one another, building into one another's lives, pouring into each other, being devoted and committed to one another as this local church, the, the, one local church in the church of Jesus Christ. We need one another. We cannot just float through this culture and expect that we're going to go strong living out kingdom values. It will not happen. God has designed it in such a way that it will not happen. We have the spirit of God living inside of us, but we need one another. This is why there's so many commands in the scriptures urging us to spur one another on, to follow Jesus towards love and good deeds. Because ultimately, we're living with two natures. We have, we have the spirit of God living in us, but we have the flesh, and we will revert to that. Time after time after time, we will revert to it. If we don't have real, authentic relationships built upon the word of God. And so my, maybe my final word in this series is that we would embrace, that we would pray for both personally and for our church, a kingdom culture, a kingdom culture. Guys, our strategy, what we do, where we meet, how pretty the worship leader is, it doesn't matter that much. If it did, there would be millions of people here right now if it was based on the prettiness of the worship leader. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about my wife. Just in case you're, you're confused. Our strategy, the very specific things we do, I'm not saying they don't matter. Our, our competency matters, but it pales in comparison to the way that we faithfully live out kingdom values, the culture that we have. When someone comes into our church, they should be coming into a culture of radical obedience to Jesus Christ, a culture of prayer, of worship, of loving the Bible, of walking out the Bible when it's hard, of sharing the scriptures with one another, of, of, of not participating in Christian service, in worship, in giving, when it's convenient. But having our devotion to Jesus Christ be the very first, the cornerstone in our life that everything else, everything else must form around. This is the kind of culture that people must come into when they come into our church. And by the grace of God, I think we've had this in so many ways. 
But I also think there are many, many ways for our church to grow, to practice repentance, personally, corporately. And we want to see the Spirit of God revive us and bring us back to our first love. Where the things that we do when there's no organizational pressure, this reveals our culture. When there's not some meeting agenda that we're plugging into, we need, we need those. We need to have agendas. We need to have plans. I'm not saying those are bad. But when those things aren't there, what are the things that we talk about? What are the things that we do? Does our love for Jesus Christ come through when we relate to one another? I think it does, and, and I think it doesn't. I think it does, and I think it doesn't. I, I hope you agree with that and can experience the grace of God in that and can be motivated, even right now. I hope together, all of us, all of us hearing this are motivated together to seek the Lord and desperately cry out to him and ask him to build a kingdom culture where ultimately we're going to overlap with the world. We're going to overlap in a lot of ways. We're going to live in the world and we are going to preach the gospel and we're going to love people and influence people and follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. But we will not get our marching orders from the world but from Jesus Christ, to be like him. Let's pray, let's pray together to that end. Lord, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our church. And you are worthy of your kingdom, Lord. I thank you that you have invited us and brought us in to your kingdom, Lord. Help us to live like you and to understand and to live out and to be grateful for and to embrace kingdom values with our whole heart and our minds. Lord, to be proud of them as we're proud of, of you, the leader of, of our kingdom, the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would spur one another on to follow the king to live boldly in a world that's difficult and to take heart because Jesus Christ, you have overcome the world. You will overcome the world. You will never fail. You will never leave us. You will be faithful to us as you have been faithful to every single promise that you've ever made, Lord. Empower us even now, even right now, Lord, to take heart in our Lord and King together as one our church, and faithful Christians and believers from around the world. Lord, help us to take heart as one in our King, unfailing Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys so much. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week.